All right, so we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And let's thank the Lord together. Thank you, Father, that you are so awesome in every way, that you answer our prayers, that you have called us, ordained us, you filled us with your spirit, and, and you also um, do things beyond our imagination, that you're so uh, glorious and good, that nothing is difficult for you. You are a savior and a deliverer, and we worship you. Thank you for the ability to praise you and to thank you for all that you've done and to be mindful of your kindness toward us. And as we read your word, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us understanding. Help, help these words to sink into hearts that have been prepared by you for your good purposes. And thank you for my brothers and sisters here today for the work that you will accomplish. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. It happens every year after a nice long off-season, even for professional athletes. They report for camp a bit unfit, a little, you know, maybe five to 10 kilos overweight. And one reason why they have training camp is so that athletes will be prepared for the coming season, that they would reduce the chance of serious injury, they'd be able to gel with their teammates, drill fundamentals, learn schemes. And it, wouldn't it be strange if, if, a, if an athlete who received a multi, multi-million dollar contract figured because of the contract and because I'm locked in for the next few years, there's no reason for me to go to camp. There's no reason for me to train because I'm, I'm set. That, that would be silly, right? Because there's an expectation that comes along with the team committing to a player where they say, well, we're making a commitment to pay you, and so your commitment is now to the team to live up to this expectation that you're going you're gonna to be there and, and uh, win games for us. So that contract should provide all the more motivation to train. But it doesn't always work out that way. And there's no shortage of players that have received the big contracts but were a total bust, right? They didn't pan out. They had some scandals off the field. They just weren't in form. Um, and, you know, followers of Jesus can bear a resemblance because we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been given grace and forgiveness and a new life in Christ. We've been given gifts and a role in the body of Christ. And we're not just set for the next couple of years. We're really set for eternity. And if a professional athlete can get a bit soft, if they can allow, uh, you know, a little bit of let's say, lacks around the table, the things that they're putting in their bodies, the amount of exercise, ah, well, the season's a long way off. We can kind of have that approach in spiritual things too, can't we? We can get a bit soft and out of shape. And I'm speaking for myself. We don't always live up to our full potential of victory and holiness that God would have us. There's a great example in the scripture with the children of Israel. God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He birthed the nation and he led them over time into the land that he had promised to their fathers. Their position as God's people, it didn't guarantee they would take possession of all the land God had given them, right? He said, you're my people. Here's the land. Go into it. 
this is yours by lot. This is your spot. And they go, but there's giants up there and there's fortresses and strongholds and walls. And it was going to take a lot of work to take that land. But through God, they could. Caleb, a man of faith, he said, give me this mountain. He's 80 plus. He's like, give me this mountain. I know that we'll deliver him. If God's with me, we can defeat those giants in this land. And he received that inheritance that God had given to him. But not everyone did. So there's that example for us that they fell short of their potential of getting that land, that inheritance God had given them. And God has given us more than just land. He's given us himself. He's given us his word and his promises and, and these roles that we have in the body of Christ that we would be edifying and building one another up in faith. We have this hope of eternal life. And Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about our position in Christ. All that Christ has done for us, what he's given us by his grace, that we have this privileged position. And now the next three chapters are really talking about how we live this out, what it's supposed to look like, how we can, like those Israelites, take possession of what God has given us. Not that it would be for us, but that we would be living our lives for God and playing it out in daily life. It's now is the time for us to get in spiritual shape, right? To be ready, ready for the conflict that's going to come. And, and God doesn't want us to be this, this, I guess, a spiritual superstar, but really a member of the team that's walking in love and working well with others. That is honoring God in every aspect of life. We keep growing in that. So Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For you Bible students out there, whenever you see the word therefore, you know it's a continuation of thought. So he says, I therefore. He's referring back to something he's already said, and he talks about... Um, in the previous chapter, how he was praying for the believers in Ephesus, that they would be strengthened in the inner man, that, they, that Jesus would dwell in their hearts by faith, that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love, and that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And after saying that, he concludes in verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And I think it's wonderful that the power of God isn't just somewhere out there to be tapped into, but it's really, he is within each one of us in the Holy Spirit. God has given us and equipped us his spirit so we can be the people he has called us to be, to be the people he saved us to be, um, not just to be the person we always were. That's why we're born again when we're saved through faith, and then we continue to mature and grow in Christ. Reading these verses in context, it reminds me of the Great Commission. You guys are familiar with that, perhaps in Matthew 28. And often it's started in verse 19 where people say, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but the verse preceding is really the key verse. In verse 18, because the only way we can accomplish that, that we can go and be the disciples of Christ he's called us, is Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. You see the difference? So it's not just going because you're pumped up and you're like, all right, we're going to do this. Jesus is saying, all power on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. So I am equipping you. I am enabling you to go. In my strength, go. And in this case, in, in Ephesians, he's saying, walk worthy of the call that God has called you to. Because God is the one who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think, that you're filled with all the fullness of God. You are therefore enabled to do exactly what God has asked you to, what he's commanded you to do. It's only through Christ that we can do that. So that multi-million dollar contract, is that going to help that cricketer slog his way, his or her way to a century? No. But I'm making the big bucks. I'm a superstar. Like, that century is just mine. No, you've got to, there's, there's an amount of labor and training and practice that's involved in that. So if we're going to be the children of God, there will be an, an amount of labor that's required from us, a responsibility that, yes, God is the one who accomplishes these things, but we have to cooperate with him. If he's leading us with the Holy Spirit, we need to go where he's leading us. We need to obey him and trust him, right? If we humble ourselves before God in faith, God does marvelous things. And he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, is there anyone here that this is just, this is you before Christ? All lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, always seeking to keep the unity of the Spirit. Like, when you see this, you're like, I could just think of myself. Really? Well, this is what Jesus has saved us to be. This is not you. This is not me. This is not us naturally at all. We tend to be harsh and judgmental and easily offended and keeping record of wrongs. And we're not loving and kind. We, someone says one thing and we remember it and we look at them through that negative filter for maybe a long time. That's us naturally. But this is what we've been called to. This is the standard we are to live up to, walking worthy of not as a child who they're on their best behavior because they hope to get something, but because we've received already from the Lord, this is to mark our life because we've received him. We've received salvation. We've received um, this sanctification, this ongoing work that's happening. It's not in us to walk in all lowliness and gentleness. We need to be born again through faith in Jesus. With long-suffering. Is there anyone who likes to suffer for a long time? No. I don't like to suffer for even a short time. But it says, with all long-suffering. With long-suffering. Bearing with one another. That means putting up with others for a long time. Even when it's, hurt, it's hurting and it's hard. And again, I go, well, that's not me. Not naturally. But praise the Lord. We see that in Jesus, don't we? And as his followers, we can walk like him. Jesus displayed humility, meekness. He was long-suffering. He wasn't detached from emotion, though, or speaking the truth in love. There were many times he spoke pointed words. Think today we think of meekness and we think weakness, but really meekness is the strength to humbly obey God even in the face of opposition. 
And Jesus said things that outside the context of love, we would say, well, it's pretty harsh, but know God's heart towards people, that he does love them. And sometimes stern words are required. Moses, it said, was uh, more meek than any man. And yet last night we were reading the Bible where he's like, you, that's this sinful group of people, look what you've done. And he's kind of calling them out for Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh were saying, oh, we're fine on the east side of Jordan. And he's saying, you're, you're deterring everyone from entering the land of promise. And he had some pretty strong things to say, but he was being obedient to God. He was speaking, speaking the truth in love. And that's meekness. When even there's opposition, we're willing to graciously say the thing that God has said. So we're to endeavor to do this. This word endeavor, it's diligently, earnestly, and swiftly. Our aim is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this peace, it speaks of wholeness and good health, not just the absence of conflict. It's that we would be seeking that oneness in Christ, that there would be humility and love between us. And when we say unity, we don't, it's not meaning uniformity, that we would all be exactly the same, carbon copies of each other, believing precisely the same thing. Um, there, is, there are differences. It's kind of like a rugby team, right? They're all wearing the same color jumper, but the numbers on the backs are different because each number, it refers to a particular position they play. And if you look at them, when they're all standing there doing the national anthem, you have the big guys, and you have the shorter guys, the quick guys, right? So there's different body styles because of the position. Same thing in gridiron. There's, there's certain roles that people are cut out to play based upon their physique, and they'll train for specific roles on that team, like the quarterback. He's the one that throws the ball. The receiver, his job is to catch the ball. Receivers usually aren't that good at blocking. But if they are going to be able to catch the ball, they need to have offensive linemen that can block. And so this whole team is working together to achieve that goal of either stopping the opposition or scoring the touchdown. So having been born again by faith in Jesus, we're all called to different parts of the body of Christ. We're all going to have a different number on our jumper, so to speak. We're all going to have a different role in how we are going to advance the kingdom of God. And while we're all called to love one another, it's going to look different coming from each one. The way that we show love is even different sometimes. In reading one scripture, you might have one uh, point of emphasis that's very important or application that you say, well, this is really the key thing. Someone else might read that scripture who's born again and following Jesus and may have a different take on things. Even what it means, there may be differences. But peace is not eliminating all our differences, trying to be uniform and all the same, but to keep the unity of the Spirit. So we're not sowing discord. We're not holding on to grudges or bitterness. We're not promoting our personal agenda. We're not trying to win followers to our side. We are following Jesus, and we're encouraging others to do that too. And isn't it great that we have the Holy Spirit who guides and leads us into all truth? That even, I mean, I used to think that if I just, I knew the truth and I spoke the truth, it was just going to make like an immediate transformational change. I'm like, oh, yeah. And that doesn't always happen. When people tell the truth to me, it doesn't always happen in me. But the Holy Spirit, he's with us all the time, and he can speak to us in ways that other people can't. And he can reach into us and change our perspective. And we have to trust him. 
that the way that he's been working in our lives, he's going to work in someone else's life too, in your spouse, in your child, in your brother or sister who doesn't seem to get it. And it's like, well, do you get it? Do you understand perfectly? Are you walking uprightly in every aspect? And we're like, well, no, but come on. And God's like, look at yourself and see, are you walking in truth? We should be the ones that are quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to repent, quick to admit we've been wrong and bless. And if we see a rift among other members of the body of Christ, we're to be quick to take action, to see people restored to fellowship with the Lord and with one another, with grace. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you're going to be in relationship, there's going to be effort required to keep those bonds strong. And if we're going to be united in fellowship in Christ, there's effort too that must be placed. Not considering ourselves to be more than we ought, but humbling ourselves. And this, this is intentional. We have to do this. Uh, and he says, there's one body of Christ. There's one church. We have many different churches, a lot of different members, but there's one body where Jesus is the head of that body. Uh, one Holy Spirit, he's regenerated us, who has called us, gifted us according to his will. There's one hope. We have eternal salvation in Jesus and a hope that does not fade away reserved in heaven for us. There's one baptism, likely speaking of water baptism, that was the same for Jew or Gentile. John preached a baptism of repentance. Our baptism is an identification and obedience with Jesus, that he died, was buried, and rose from the dead. In the same way, we, are, we choose an obedience to him as he was baptized, to be baptized, and then he's the one who baptizes us with the Spirit and fire. There's one God, one Father of all. And if we in Christ are united, it's God who is above all and through all and in you all. And so what unites us in Christ is far greater than our differences of personality or our ethnicity or our history. You may have people from totally different cultures and backgrounds, but in Christ we are one in him. And that is to be our place of unity, not because we think the same or we have the same tastes. It's not our unity or our oneness that's to be celebrated, but Christ. He's the one who unites us. It is great when you you really feel a sense of unity and a connection with people. That's great. That's a gift from the Lord. But people change. Jesus doesn't change. His word, it remains the same. And he's the one to be celebrated. And it would be tragic for us to create division where Jesus has made us united. Like we can't get along with another church group or fellowship because there's differences of theology that don't regard uh, God and those, those uh, I guess, non, those essential doctrines. Granted, not everyone who claims to follow Jesus is following Jesus. There are many false prophets that have gone into the world. But it's sad when we're sitting in the judgment seat. We all don't like how it feels to be judged. But when we're sitting in the judgment seat and we begin to classify people or group them into these camps and we're judging people according to differences rather than what has united us in Christ. 
If we value relationship with Jesus, we should value relationship with one another, the people that he has paid for with his own blood. And I, I shudder to think at times, I was going over this in my mind, how many close friendships have been stunted or never grew because I was unwilling for someone else to hold a value that w- or a, a belief that was slightly different than mine. And so I kind of wrote them off. And God could have intended there to be this flourishing, vital relationship in my life. But because of this one difference, I was unwilling to be patient and long-suffering and to seek the unity of the Spirit in peace that we're told about here. I read something by C.S. Lewis. It really challenged me concerning friendship and unity. He said, we have respect and admiration that grows for one another when we fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, and pray with him. And he writes, we did not choose one another, but God chose us for one another. You didn't get to choose your parents, right? God chose them for you. And though there's a lot of choices of places where we could be in fellowship, it's like God's chosen us for one another. So are we, are we going to submit to that and rejoice in the people that not only I need in my life, but that you need in your life, even people that you may find challenging? Are you able to have a disagreement with a friend and even an argument, and then instead of just praying for that person to be praying with them. I was like, wow, that is a good place to be. Where the bond we have in Christ, the friendship that we have, it's able to endure even disagreement because he has made us one. We are one in him. So instead of dividing over something superficial, that we would be loving one another and praying with each other. Because Jesus unites us. Verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Having been born again by grace through faith, We've received grace, it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that's beyond reckoning. You can't measure that, right? The grace that God's shown you, you you can't, there's no scales where you could say, well, this is where it ends. No, it's an infinite amount of grace he's extended. And when Christ was crucified on Calvary and he rose from the dead, he conquered sin, death, hell, the power of Satan, and we're all benefactors of his victory. Now, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19 with a little twist, and I'll read it for you. It says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. This leading captivity captive... It's alluding to the practice of victorious kings or military that after they had won the battle, let's say there had been a, uh, bandits or an army that had invaded and they had taken captive some of your people. Well, the king would send his army. He would go defeat those who were taking his people captive and then he would parade them before um, the home crowd in a victory procession. And they would, those people who were delivered 
from uh, bondage, they would give gifts to the king. I mean, that's only fitting, right? If you were a loyal subject of the king and you'd been set free because he's like, hey, send an attachment of soldiers, deliver my people, and you were delivered, and you see the people that were your cruel taskmasters being paraded around, you'd be like, wow, I, oh, king, thank you, and you'd give them a gift. But Paul switches it around. Instead of focusing on the gifts to be given the king, he says, God, in his victory, has given you gifts. God has led captivity captive. The ones who held you captive, Satan, the powers of the devil, they've been disarmed, and now you receive gifts of the kingdom of God. So God's given us grace by giving us gifts. He's like, he's not like, I've delivered you, so you owe me. Does that sound like God? No, that's not the God we read of in Scripture because he gives grace. And because he is, we are recipients of that grace, we delight to give to him and to others. And how many gifts has God given us? Physical gifts, spiritual gifts, every blessing in, this, in the heavenly places. And he explains, for Jesus to ascend, he first had to descend, right? He had to come down so he could go up, and he condescended. He became human flesh in the person of Jesus. He humbled himself to be crucified. He went even lower. He was buried in the earth, and then he went into Sheol. And now he's ascended. God has exalted him above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should give an oath that he is God to the glory of the Father. Today, the relation of Christ to the church is as a husband to a bride. And in that Jewish culture, when a woman was betrothed to her husband, she was married but the marriage had not been consummated yet. They were not living as husband and wife. And while the husband was away preparing a home, usually in his father's house, for them to dwell together in, the wife was also preparing and she was remaining chaste for her husband with whom she'd be united on the day when the father said, it's time for your bride. And he would go take his bride in a procession and they would go and live in the father's house. So it's a beautiful picture of how we as the church, we await Christ who will come for us. So if you could turn a couple pages forward to Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. We'll see this example where it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Because Jesus has loved us and he's given himself for us, he desires we would be set apart in purity for him. We'd be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. There's, there's a sanctifying and purifying effect the scriptures have when we read them, believe them, and we make decisions according to them. As individual members of Christ's body, we're called to live those holy lives and without blemish, all by God's grace. Moving on to Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we'll just stop there. It's kind of a big mouthful. 
continuing this theme of being made one in Jesus and he being above all, through all, and in you all, we see that God is called and he's gifted people in the church. When Jesus left, he said, it's to my advantage that I go. And if you're one of his disciples, you might think, well, how could that be? How could it be beneficial for you, the Son of God, to go? And he says, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. He's going to teach you everything that I want to say. He's going to help you. He's going to comfort you. And we read the Holy Spirit. He gifts people in the church according to his will in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And Paul presents some leadership roles in the church. They're intended to work together to promote the unity of the church in Christ. Notice these are just some of the roles and only some people are called to them. It's not everyone does everything, but there are some who are called to be apostles, some to be prophets. Now the purpose of these various roles, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So I want to go into that before we talk about the roles individually. So equipping, it has the idea to put right, to put in the right order, to get organized. Um, Guzik wrote, the ancient Greek word was used to describe setting broken bones or mending nets. These ministries work together to produce strong, mended, fit Christians. So after using the nets, right, the fishermen had to mend the nets. They had to get all the debris that it collected out and where there were holes that it hit, it maybe snagged on a, a log underneath and there was this gaping hole. They had to repair that so it was strong and able to be used. Sermon Index, it, it says considering this word equipping, which is katartismos, it refers to that which has been restored to its original condition, being made fit or being made complete. So fit, complete, mended. And it also can be used in the term fitting out. So like the fitting out of a building so that it can be used. When this building was purchased, it was just two warehouse, pretty empty places that needed to be fit out for church ministry. So there could be a classroom, there could be a, the main sanctuary or auditorium. And uh, we're very much the same when we come to Christ. He's the one who fits us out for use in his body. And he's provided roles in the church to oversee and teach and correct, strengthen, repair, and heal. Because we need that. We need to be taught. We need to be restored. We need to be helped to make the church be as God intended. And, and I'm convinced that all the roles mentioned here, they are valid and needed in the church today. As re, If the church is here, the church needs these aspects to be in function, just like the gifts of the Holy Spirit that all the gifts of the Spirit, they are valid for today. All these roles are also valid. Um, an apostle, it's one who is sent. God still sends people for the church to make him known throughout the whole world. And Jesus, he's called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. Uh, he called the, apost the original 12 apostles as a matter of distinction. But there are many others in the New Testament called apostles without caveat. Paul, Barnabas, and many others. So one who has been sent. Prophets, they've been supplied to the church. They hold forth God's truth in agreement with Scripture. Agabus, we read of him in the book of Acts, that he was a prophet who spoke predictively of a famine that would come, and it did. Um, the evangelist Philip, he had four daughters who prophesied in the book of Acts. 
So modern apostles and prophets, they don't have a role in laying down the original foundations, right? No foundation can be laid except which has already been laid. There's no new doctrine that's going to uh, be added to the scripture. That's complete. But these roles to be sent and to speak the word of God in truth by being led by the Spirit, very valid, necessary for the church. Uh, when we think of evangelists, we might think of itinerant preachers or those who are spreading the gospel from a pulpit, but it can be broadly applied to those who are effective in sharing the gospel with others. They have this heart for it. They are gifted in this way. And um, Many view pastors and teachers as a single role, so whether it's a pastor-teacher or pastors and teachers, people look at it differently, but those who are overseeing the fellowship, those who are teaching the scriptures. So apostles sent by God's direction for the church, prophets reveal God's divine truth to the church, evangelists cause people to be joined to the church, and pastors and teachers, they oversee and instruct the church in the word of God. So all people will be equipped, set right, healthy, mended, Functional like that net that's already been repaired that you can just go out on the water and it's ready for use at any time. That we would be like that in God's hands. That whatever he leads us to do, we'd trust him and he'll make us fruitful, edified, strengthened in faith. Please turn to Romans chapter 12, 4 through 8. Now this, these are not, this is not an exhaustive list of the ways that God leads people. You think, well, it's all fine and good for the pastor to be talking about that pastors and teachers are part of the church. It may be a bit self-serving. like, But the reality is there are many gifts of the Spirit and there's many roles that may not have a, a title per se. We're all ministers of the Word of God, His people. But listen to this. You, you, may, you may have not seen yourself. You know, whenever you see a picture and it's a group photo, who do you look for if you know you're in it somewhere? You're like, I'm in that picture somewhere, and you try to find yourself. It's the first thing we do, and we can do that in the Bible, too. We're reading through, like, apostles, prophets, evangelists. I don't see myself here. Where am I? Do I have to fit in one of these five spots? No, you don't. You don't have to fit there. You could fit in two of them. You could fit in none of those, but listen to some of these. This is not, not everything, but this is some. Romans 12, verse 4 through 8. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I pray you see yourself there. And there's other roles too. Where you go, this is just as important because we're all members of one another. We're all strengthening each other in following Christ. We need each other. Because if there's no one that's exhorting, if there's no one giving, if there's no one leading, if there's no one showing mercy cheerfully, we won't be what God has created us to be. These are just as important, vital in the body of Christ. There's such diversity in the body. 
And, and these, these gifts are not greater than one another. They're all needed. If we didn't need it, I mean, think of all the parts of your body that you have, both inside and out. They, if you had seen it, you'd be like, why do I need that? Oh, it's actually quite important. There's all sorts of parts of the body that they go, oh, yeah, tonsils, they're useless. Uh, this vestigial organ here or there. But they serve a function. They serve a purpose in our body. God knew what he was doing when he created us, and he knows what he's doing when he puts the church together. And you may, we may put on a pedestal a few of these and say, oh, you know, the apostle Paul. But God called him as an apostle to do a work. And God called the people that he used apostle Paul to bring to Christ. And all these roles are needed until when? It says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So if you weren't convinced that we need these roles, this is the question I ask to you. Have we achieved perfection? Have we all come to perfect unity of the faith, perfect man, the full measure of the stature of Christ? Speaking for myself, I can say, no, I'm not. I want to be like Jesus. I'm not always like Jesus. The flesh sometimes gets the upper hand. And I can be stubborn and forget and worry. Forget that God's in control and that he has all power and that he loves me. There's like, yeah, I probably don't even need to go further because we're all on the same page there. Not perfect. We don't measure up to Christ's perfect example of faith, hope, love, meekness, long-suffering, and grace. And it does very little good for me to draw my conclusions based upon what I see, but really me. Because then I can repent. I can't repent for you, but I can repent for my sin. And say, Lord, you know how wretched I am. And Moses said that once, don't let me see my own wretchedness. Lord, kill me now. I am just, ugh. And, and we hear that longing in Paul as well, not to die, but like, like, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, Jesus. Jesus has come. He has saved us. And without him, we can do nothing. It's he who works in us both to will and to do of God's pleasure, good pleasure. He doesn't just put the desire to be Christ-like in you to kind of tease you. No, he's, it's, and it's not in you. He has put that desire within you, and he will bring that to fulfillment and completion one day. And we're all on that trajectory to be more like Jesus and to help each other, too. Paul continues in verse 14. So he's saying, this is why we have those members of the church. And now in verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." The result of people who are equipped for ministry and they're edified in Christ, they're strengthened and built up, they will have spiritual maturity. They'll be brought to a place where they're no longer resembling children who are gullible and impressionable and they don't realize that there's bad people in the world and they think because someone's smiling at them that they're kind and nice, not realizing they have a sinister motive. 
So we want to, he wants us to be brought to a place where we're no more like children or like that boat that's at the mercy of the waves and the currents, the culture, the society, and that we'd be steadfast in him as Christ is our anchor. The church needs God's strength to keep from being thrown off course by false doctrine and greed and conspiracies and worldly social pressure, deceit. We're called to be on guard against temptation, but not to the point where we're so exhausted by the battle or consumed by danger, potential danger, that we cease looking to Jesus and trusting in Him. Because I've seen people that they view their spiritual walk as very much the soldier in the battle, like everything's a battle. And that's the only... Um, I guess, lens through which they view their life. And, and everything's a threat. Everything's something to worry about, to fight against. And it's just exhausting when you say, well, hold on, you're a child of God. And, and you are the bride of Christ as the church. And you have, there's all these other ways that we can view this position that we have with God to know that we're protected by him. Yes, we are those good Christian soldiers marching unto war. You guys have ever sung that song? But there were also his beloved, his redeemed, the ones he's delivered from bondage. We don't have to fight like, like we have no hope. He is our hope and we are his. There are false prophets. Our enemy Satan is crafty and we are prone to deception, but we're never at the mercy of lies or the devil and we don't have to isolate ourselves for fear of stumbling, but we can walk in victory in the world right out in the open because of what Jesus has done for us. Speaking the truth in love. We'll be growing, it says, up in all things into him who is the head. Growth in a baby and a child that indicates good health. Now, if you have a five kilo baby, it's a pretty big baby. I'd be like, yeah, this kid, I don't even use pounds and ounces. We just kilos. Big baby. But if that five kilo baby, six months later, is only six kilos, that's a problem. That baby is not putting on weight like it should. There's some issue that needs to be investigated. So it's pretty easy to measure the, the weight of a child on a scale or with a measuring tape on the wall using those metrics. But the way to gauge spiritual growth is love, speaking the truth in love, walking in the love of Jesus Christ. That's the metric that we're given for the church. Jesus said, after Judas left intent on betraying him, Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving each other. That's so critical that we'd be loving one another, marked by the love of Christ. That's what's the indication of a healthy church. We have the Holy Spirit. He's like the first defense against sin. And mature believers in fellowship are like a strengthened immune system in the body that can help us notice things in our lives that we didn't realize were sinful or beliefs that we've had that aren't scriptural. Interacting with others, it brings sin in us, not others, to light. Because you realize, oh, it wasn't their fault that I lost my temper. 
It's because I have a temper. I have a problem. Being one with Jesus through faith, it promotes health and growth of the church because we are, it says, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Colossians 3.14, it says this, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, which is, uh, you could say literally, the perfect ligament or the ligament of love. That bond, it's a ligament. And ligaments are a connective tissue in the body. It's very strong. Uh, it's flexible. It keeps your organs in, uh, in place, provides strength to the joints, and it also limits the motion. If I didn't have any elbow ligaments at all, I could hyperextend my elbow and do damage. I'd have arthritis and all sorts of problems. When I tore my ACL in my right knee, um, I was in pain. But there was a point, even with no ACL, that I could live. I could walk. I could have a pretty normal life, except my muscles and my quad just wasted away. I had to be really careful about the ways that I walked, and arthritis was going to be in my future unless I got it repaired. Uh, limited mobility, and l I had to be really careful. Like Running was not what I was going to do because I knew that that's going to hurt. Now, as a member of the body, God's love through you supplies strength to effectively equip and edify other members of the body. So the church needs you. We need one another, the love of Jesus through you. And it's a lie of Satan to, to imagine your involvement in church and being engaged in the lives of others really doesn't matter. Oh, we've got, we've got the teacher, we've got the pastor, we've got these uh, elders or uh, the evangelists, and uh, they're all doing their thing. I'm really not needed. No, you are needed because you're part of the body of Christ, and we're members of one another. And there's countless other roles that are so vital in the Scripture and in the body. And, and I feel that we can judge church perhaps by metrics that God doesn't use, uh, the quality of the worship or the demeanor of the pastor, the age of the pastor, um, the specialized ministries that are offered, the statement of faith, uh, how long the services are. I remember my granddaddy says, like, Ben, I found the greatest church. You know, like 15-minute services. He's like, they just get that mass done, man. I'm like, oh, oh so that's, oh, all right, all right. That's just a, a metric I never used before. Um, now, how friendly the people are there. How many people are there? We can say, well, there, there's plenty of people that'll be there. But what about you? Are, are you going to, and not just on a Sunday, but are you willing to be engaged in sharing the love of Jesus with others in the body? Uh, because each member is supplying that strength, and it's Jesus through them. And it's going to cause the whole body to grow and be strengthened in faith. Paul boils it down to that one thing for those who have trusted Christ, loving God, loving one another, especially our brothers and sisters. And it's going to cost to share that love, won't it? It costs Jesus everything to show his love to us. And he has set that example. And a servant is not above his master. It will cost us to repent of our bitterness, of our resentment, of our hatred, of our laziness. And if we're going to take that, take that on as God's called us to, to be part of a body, 
then just like the children of Israel, there's strongholds that need to come down in us. There's rocks and fields that need to be cleared in us. There's new avenues of service God will have for us. And this isn't like, oh no, more work, which we can feel like. But isn't it Jesus working in us? He is accomplishing this. We need to cooperate with him and he helps us do that. If we'll take this to heart, to obey him to love one another, we will mature, we will grow, and we'll help others too. Allow Jesus to set you right today, to mend you, those broken bits, those hurts. Allow him to do a work in your life so you can love him and serve him according to his will for you. Because he has a place in the body for you. We didn't choose one another, but God chose us for one another, that we would serve him. I'll just finish with Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, let's be united in Christ. Let's, let, let's, seek, to be, let's seek Him that He would mend us, that He would prepare us so we can love one another as He's called us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You've called us to one body and that You have a purpose and a plan for each one that through us You will supply strength so the body will grow and be edified and what a privileged position to be part of your body, to be an individual member in your body that you have chosen to use for your glory. Lord, you have showered us with so much grace and compassion. You've been long-suffering to us and gracious and merciful. And may we be those who uh, extend the same grace and compassion to others. Lord, I pray if there... If, I know that there are hurts. I know that there is mending to be done. I pray in each one of us, Lord, you would expose that area before your throne that we could uh, just submit to your will, that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so you will lift us up. And thank you, Lord, that you have already blessed us. You've already gifted us and you have called us into your presence and to great purpose in your body. So I pray that you would just uh, illuminate our hearts. Lord, fill us with your spirit and cause us to rejoice in your name now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.